Welcome back, my friends, to the Big Book Podcast. My name is Howard, and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since 1988, one day at a time. In this episode, the sixth story in the personal stories section of the first edition of Alcoholics Anonymous published in 1939. It's entitled, A Businessman's Recovery. This is another one of those stories that was only printed in the first edition and never made it to subsequent editions. In that way, if you've never seen it, you may feel like it's a brand new story from the big book that you're hearing for the first time. And now, the original story, A Businessman's Recovery. S.S. Falcon of the Red D Line, bound from New York to Maracaibo, Venezuela, glided up the bay and docked at the wharf in the port of La Guaira on a hot tropical afternoon early in 1927. I was a passenger on that boat, bound for the oil fields of Maracaibo as an employee of the X Oil Company, under a two-year contract at a good salary and maintenance. There I hoped to buckle down to two years of hard work and save some money, but above all, to avoid any long-continued drinking that would interfere with my work, because that had cost me too many jobs in the past. Not that I was going to give up drinking entirely. No, such a step would be too drastic. But down here, in the oil fields with a bunch of hard-working, hard-drinking good fellows, I, too, would learn how to handle my liquor and not let it get the best of me again. Such an environment would surely do the trick, would surely teach me to drink moderately with the best of them, and keep me away from those long, disastrous sprees. I was still young. I could make the grade, and this was my chance to do it. At last, I had the real answer, and my troubles were over. Red and I, who had become bosom shipboard companions on the way down from New York, stood at the rail, watching the activity on the dock incident to getting the vessel secured alongside. Red was also on his way to Maracaibo to work for the same company, and we agreed that so long as we were going to be here overnight, we might as well go ashore together and look the town over. Red was a swell fellow, who might take a drink now and then, who might even get drunk once in a while, but he could handle his liquor, and did not go to any great excesses. Thousands of other fellows like him, who have been my drinking companions from time to time, were in no way responsible for the way I drank, or what I did, or the way liquor affected me. So off we went, Red and I, to do the town, and do it we did. After a few drinks, we decided there wasn't much else to do in town except to make a round of the cantinas, have a good time, get back to the ship early, and get a good night's rest. So what harm would a little drinking do now, I reasoned, especially with one full day and two nights ahead to get over it. We visited every cantina along the straggling main street of La Guaira, and feeling high, wide, and handsome, Red and I decided to return to the ship. When we rolled down to the dock, we found that our ship had been berthed off from the wharf about thirty feet, and that it was necessary to take a tender out to her. No such ordinary method would satisfy Red and myself, so we decided to climb the stern hawser hand over hand to get on board. The flip of a coin decided that I would go first, so off I started, hand over hand, up the hawser. 
Now, even a good, experienced sailor, perfectly sober, would never attempt such a foolhardy feat, and, as was to be expected, about halfway up the hawser, I slipped and fell into the bay with a loud splash. I remember nothing more until next morning. The captain of the boat said to me, "'Young man, it is true that God looks after drunken fools and little children.' You probably don't know it, but this bay is infested with man-eating sharks, and usually a man overboard is a goner. How close you were to death, you don't realize, but I do. Yes, I was lucky to be saved, but it wasn't until ten years later, after I had time and time again tempted fate by going on protracted benders, that I was really saved. Not until after I had been fired from job after job, tried the patience of my family to the breaking point, alienated what might have been many, many good lasting friendships, taken my dear wife through more sorrow and heartaches than any one woman should bear in a lifetime. After doctors, hospitals, psychiatrists, rest cures, changes of scenery, and all the other paraphernalia that go with the alcoholic's futile attempts to quit drinking, Finally, I dimly began to get the realization that during 20 years of continual drinking, every expedient I had tried, and I had tried them all, had failed me. I hated to admit the fact, even to myself, that I just couldn't lick booze. I was licked. I was desperate. I was scared. I was born in 1900. My father was a hard-working man who did the very best he could to support his family of four on a small income. Mother was very good to us, kind, patient, and loving. As soon as we were old enough, my mother sent us to Sunday school, and it so happened that as I grew older, I took quite an active interest, becoming successively a teacher and later superintendent of a small Sunday school in uptown New York. When the United States entered the World War in April 1917, I was underage, but, like most other youngsters of that period, wanted very much to get into the fray. My parents, of course, would not hear of this, but told me to be sensible and wait until I was 18. Being young and restless, however, and fired by the military spirit of the times, I ran away from home to join the army in another city. There I joined up. I didn't get into any of the actual hostilities at the front, but later, after armistice, served with the United States forces occupying the Rhineland, working my way up to a good non-commissioned rank. While serving abroad, I started to drink. This, of course, was entirely my own choice. Drinking by a soldier during those times was viewed with a degree of indulgence by both superiors and civilians. It seems to me, as I recall it now, that even then I wasn't satisfied to drink like the normal fellow. Most of the United States Army of Occupation were sent back home in 1921, but my appetite for travel had been whetted, and having heard terrible stories of prohibition in the United States, I wanted to remain in Europe where a man could raise a thirst. Subsequently, I went to Russia, then to England, and back to Germany. Working in various capacities, my drinking increasing and my drunken escapades getting worse. So back home in 1924, with the sincere desire to stop drinking and the hope that the prohibition I had heard so much about would enable me to do it, in other words, that it would keep me away from it, 
I secured a good position, but it wasn't long before I was initiated into the mysteries of the speakeasy to such an extent that I soon found myself once more jobless. After looking around for some time, I found that my foreign experience would help me in securing work in South America. So, full of hope once more, resolved that at last I was on the wagon to stay, I sailed for the tropics. A little over a year was all the company I then worked for would stand of my continual drinking and ever-lengthening benders. So they had me poured on a boat and shipped back to New York. This time, I was really through. I promised my family and friends, who helped me get along while looking for another job, that I would never take another drink as long as I lived, and I meant it. But, alas, after several successive jobs in and around New York had been lost, and it isn't necessary to tell you the cause, I was sure that the only thing that would enable me to get off the stuff was a change of scenery. With the help of patient, long-suffering friends, I finally persuaded an oil company that I could do a good job for them in the oil fields of Maracaibo. But it was the same thing all over again. Back to the United States, I really sobered up for a while, long enough to establish a connection with my present employers. During this time, I met the girl who is now my wife. At last, here was the real thing. I was in love. I would do anything for her. Yes, I would give up drinking. I would never, never do anything to even remotely affect the happiness that now came into my life. My worries were over. My problem was solved. I had sown my wild oats, and now I was going to settle down to be a good husband and live a normal, happy life. And so we were married. Supported by my newfound happiness, my abstinence this time lasted about six months. Then a New Year's Eve party we gave started me off on a long bender. The thing about this episode that is impressed on my mind is how earnestly and sincerely I then promised my wife that I would absolutely and positively this time give up drinking. And again, I meant it. No matter what we tried, and my wife helped me in each new experiment to the best of her ability and understanding, failure was always the result, and each time greater hopelessness. The next step was doctors, a succession of them, with occasional hospitalization. I remember one doctor who thought a course of 72 injections, three a week, after two weeks in a private hospital, would supply the deficiency in my system that would enable me to stop drinking. The night after the 72nd injection, I was paralyzed drunk, and a couple days later, talked myself out of being committed to the city hospital. My long-suffering employers had a long talk with me and told me that they were only willing to give me one last final chance because during my short periods of sobriety, I had shown them that I could do good work. I knew they meant it and that it was the last chance they would ever give me. I also knew that my wife couldn't stand it much longer. Somehow or other, I felt that I had been cheated that I had not really been cured at the sanitarium, even though I felt good physically. So I talked it over with my wife, who said there must be something somewhere that would help me. She persuaded me to go back to the sanitarium and consult Dr. Blank, which, thank God, I did. He told me everything had been done for me that was medically possible, 
but that unless I decided to quit, I was licked. But doctor, I said, I have decided time and time again to quit drinking, and I was sincere each time. But each time I slipped again, and each time it got worse. The doctor smiled and said, Yes, yes, I've heard that story hundreds of times. You really never made a decision. You just made declarations. You've got to decide, and if you really want to quit drinking, I know of some fellows who can help you. Would you like to meet them? Would a condemned man like a reprieve? Of course I wanted to meet them. I was so scared and so desperate that I was willing to try anything. Thus, it was that I met that band of lifesavers, Alcoholics Anonymous. The first thing Bill told me was his own story, which paralleled mine in most respects, and then said that for three years he had had no trouble. It was plain to see that he was a supremely happy man, that he possessed a happiness and peacefulness I had for years envied in men. What he told me made sense, because I knew that everything that I, my wife, my family, and my friends had tried had failed. I had always believed in God, even though I was not a devout churchgoer. Many times in my life I had prayed for the things I wanted God to do for me, but it had never occurred to me that He, in His infinite wisdom, knew much better than I what I should have and be and do and that if I simply turned the decision over to him, I would be led along the right path. At the conclusion of our first interview, Bill suggested that I think it over and come back to see him within a few days if I was interested. Fully realizing the utter futility with which my own efforts had met in the past, and somehow or other sensing that delay might be dangerous, I was back to see him the next day. At first it seemed a wild, crazy idea to me, but because of the fact that everything else I had tried had failed, because everything seemed so hopeless, and because it worked with these fellows who all had been through the same hell that I had been through, I was willing, at least, to have a try. To my utter astonishment, when I did give their method a fair trial, it not only worked, but was so amazingly easy and simple that I said to them, Where have you been all my life? That was in February 1937, and life took on an entirely different meaning. It was plain to see that my wife was radiantly happy. All of the differences that we seemed to have been having, all of the tenseness, the worry, confusion, the hectic days and nights that my drinking had poured into our life together, vanished. There was peace. There was real love. There was kindness and consideration. There was everything that goes into the fabric of a happy, normal existence together. My employers, of course, the same as the writers of these stories, must remain anonymous. But I would be very thoughtless if I did not take this opportunity to acknowledge what they did for me. They kept me on, giving me chance after chance, hoping, I suppose, that someday I would find the answer although they themselves did not know what it might be. They do now, however. A tremendous change took place in my work, in my relationship with my employers, in my association with my co-workers, and in my dealings with our customers. Crazy as the idea seemed when broached to me by these men who had found it worked, 
God did come right into my work when permitted, as he had come into the other activities connected with my life. With this sort of lubricant, the wheels turned so much more smoothly that it seemed as if the whole machine operated on a much better basis than heretofore. Promotion, that I had longed for previously but hadn't deserved, was given to me. Soon another followed. More confidence, more trust, more responsibility, and finally a key executive position in that same organization, which so charitably kept me on in a minor position through the period of my drunkenness. You can't laugh that off. Come into my home and see what a happy one it is. Look into my office. It is a happy human beehive of activity. Look into any phase of my life, and you will see joy and happiness, a sense of usefulness in the scheme of things, where formerly there was fear, sorrow, and utter futility. This concludes the reading of A Businessman's Recovery from the first edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm grateful you listened. Stay tuned for the next episode, which will feature two stories from the personal stories section. The first is a very short story entitled A Different Slant, and the second story is called Traveler, Editor, Scholar. Be sure to download and subscribe for free to future episodes of the Big Book Podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen at our website, bigbookpodcast.com, where you will also find transcriptions. If you enjoyed listening, I'd be super grateful if you can leave a rating or review. It'll help others find us. And please, be sure to share this podcast with your friends and anyone you know who has a desire to stop drinking. It may be the only version of the big book they ever hear. (laughs) 